1005 in your chair Bible. It should be up on the screen as well. <clears throat> so Hebrews chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. We'll read the entire uh, chapter. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, that, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and outwrite them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let us pray and ask for God's help. Father, we, uh, we come to you and we know as we open your word that, that you're Word is one of the primary ways in which you communicate to us, in which you speak to us. We thank you for your grace in that, that, that we're not left in the dark to, to kind of uh, swim around, not sure which way is up. Um, but you have spoken to us clearly. But also, God, we, we admit humbly this morning, even as we walk through Hebrews, that it's not always clear what you're saying to us. It's, it's difficult for our modern ears to understand even uh, Jewish culture and background and, and how that all works and how that works for us today. So I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll teach us and guide us and help us this morning. I pray in my weakness, you'll be strong. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you hang around me at, at all, uh, you'll know that I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a sports guy. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, but I, I grew up playing sports and enjoying sports, especially with my father. He kind of got me into sports at a very young age. And I know all you artists just checked out, but just hang with me. Uh, but I, I remember growing up in the 80s, there were always great rivalries in sports. And, and I feel like we've lost a little bit of that, uh, maybe because of free agency and things like that. But I remember watching like the Lakers and, and Boston uh, play these iconic NBA games, uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and all these great players, watching them with my dad. I remember uh, a little bit later, the, the Pistons and, and the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and just these iconic games and just glued to the, the television. And it was always very, very close. It was like just one point here, one play there, and, and somebody was going to win the championship. But someone always had to win. And there were these great rivalries. And what's fascinating this morning, as we look at the book of Hebrews, there is a point, uh, that there's a, a rivalry that the writer wants to make very clear, and there's a person that has no rivalry, and his name is Jesus. And so as we've gotten to chapter 8 
of the book, it's kind of like the writer is pausing for a moment just to say, hey, I just want to make very, very clear that this Jesus has no rivals, that there is no religion, there is no custom, there is no law, there is no promise, there is no covenant, there is no priest of the, of the past that rivals this Jesus, that he is better, that he is superior, that he is excellent in every way, that his ministry was, was more excellent than any way, so no one can touch him even like the most iconic basketball games that you and I could think, or football games. Maybe we could say Chiefs and Raiders uh, rivalry. I don't know. Boo. But anyway. But Jesus has no rival. And, and as we look at our text this morning, he's going to kind of contrast... The, these, these different things that have happened, if you remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament, this, this tent where, where God's people would gather together and the priests would bring these, these sacrifices and they would worship God, or a little bit later, the temple. He's going to say there, there's no rival. He, he, he's even better than the tabernacle or the temple or these covenants that God made with his people in the Old Testament. He says now there's a new covenant that's not even close. There is no rival. There's a new relationship that is offered uh, to us. And so this morning, for a few minutes, I want to look at just and ask really two questions is why Jesus has no rivals based on our text. And also, why does that matter? Like, what does that mean for us? What are the implications of that? And we'll get to that. And hopefully we'll see that that very clearly because because there is some confusing things in Hebrews as you've hopefully this has been a good, challenging, stretching series for you. Uh, as for me, uh, because Hebrews is, is kind of it's, it's foreign to us because it's so much rooted in Jewish Old Testament theology and culture and customs that for us it, to read it, it kind of feels weird. And it seems like, what, who is this guy? I mean, Andy preached about Melchizedek last week. I mean, all of you know, that's your favorite. Uh, you know, Bible character. That's why we name our kids Melchizedek. I mean, it's very obvious, right? Um, and so he handled that very, very well. But there's just these strange things that happen in our text. And so hopefully, uh, by God's grace, we can kind of begin to see kind of the, the heart of uh, chapter eight for us uh, this morning. So why Jesus has no, no rivals. I, I love, look at verse one, because the Bible doesn't always do this, but I feel, find this really helpful. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. It's like, okay, pay attention. Like I'm going to summarize the whole thing. Everything I've said before here, it's all right here. The Bible doesn't always do that. I wish it did it more. Um, just to say, hey, here's the summary. Uh, if you were following along before, here's three bullet points, right? And so here's what he says. It's saying, um, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so we want to kind of break this apart. And so right away, the, the author is saying, I want you to, to, to understand everything that we've been saying from, from verse one to now is, is that the Jesus, this Jesus is eternal. He's eternal because he sits at a, he's this high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, right? He's not saying he's on earth. He was on earth at one point, but now he sits at a place of authority and power at the right hand of God. Don't see this Jesus as just another priest among priests, because there were all kinds of priests, all kinds of human priests that would come and do sacrifices and teach the people. But this this new high priest, this this fulfillment of, of the priests of all priests, if you will, has come and he's eternal 
And he's doing something that no one else has done. His ministry isn't just on earth, but it's also in, in heaven. Did you catch that in, in, in verse 2? A minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. So yeah, he, he had instructions to Moses, as it says right in the text. He says, hey, in the Old Testament, hey, you need to make this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, and this is, you know, they're going to carry this thing around. And, and imagine how big of a hassle that would have been. Um, I mean, one, you have, you think Missouri uh, summers are sweaty and nasty. Just imagine, you know, walking through the desert when it's 192 degrees out and you're carrying this, this tent of meeting or this tabernacle and you're setting up this place where God's going to come and meet them and dwell with them. And so they had all these rules and regulations that only the high priests uh, were allowed to come into the, the first part, which we'll get into in, in just a moment. And, and, and only once a year, he'd get to go into the inner court, the Holy of Holies, and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But it had a time and a place and a physicality to it. But what he's contrasting, he's saying, Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus is the temple. He is the tabernacle. He's, he's eternal in every way. He's not hemmed in by physicality. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship him. Because he sits at the right hand of God. We can worship him under a tree or in a building on 87th and Warnell or at the beach or, or wherever we are. That, that he is the temple of all temples, the tabernacle of all tabernacles. That he's eternal in heaven. So he's not hemmed in by time and, and space. And if you follow this, this argument, you'll see why Jesus doesn't have rivals. Is because in verse 5, he says they, these priests before Jesus says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by saying, you know, this is how you're to make the, the tent and the tabernacle. But it is Christ, verse 6, who has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, and the covenant he mediates is better, since it enacted on better promises. So when you and I read our Old Testament and we see all these things happening, you know, these very, you know, Leviticus, I know you love Leviticus, and, and, and Deuteronomy, and all these books where the priests are making these sacrifices for the sins of the people, those were all shadows and pointers to what was to come. That there's going to be a time where a priest doesn't have to get an animal and sacrifice their blood. There's going to be a time when that's not necessary. These laws, these customs are no longer needed because this Jesus has come who's become our once and for all sacrifice. That his ministry is much superior because he's not, again, hemmed in by time or space. He's not just a human, but he's eternal God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the creator and redeemer of all things. And that's why he has no, no rivals. And, and that's why the book is set up the way it was. If you remember weeks and weeks ago, I mean, we went all the way back to, you know, chapter one, that this, this prophet is superior, that now God has spoken through his son, that he's the prophet of all prophets, that he's the creator of all creators. He's the temple of all temples, that, that he's superior to even angels. So Jesus has no, no rivals because he's eternal God and his ministry was always going to be the fulfillment of what had come before. And verse 7 makes it very clear that this old way, this old covenant, this, these promises that God made are inferior to what Jesus has done because he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So, so if Jesus, this Messiah, wasn't going to come, there was no point in even waiting with hope that there was going to be this Messiah that could forgive the, the sins of the people. Because think about Old Testament sacrificial systems. Because I know you think about it every day, every morning. It's just it's always on your brain. You're just like, you know, I just, I just, I don't know. I'm just thinking about it a lot. 
But, but let's say you, you are thinking about it. it, it it's, it, it's inferior. Because here's the problem, what I know about you and I know about me, is that you and I keep on sinning. And so every time we sin, we have to make a sacrifice for that sin, right? And so the Old Testament way was there, there would be daily and weekly and monthly different customs and different celebrations. There would be yearly sacrifices, as it talks about in the text in, in chapter 9. We didn't read it yet, but, but in chapter 9, it talks about making these, these sacrifices these for inten- unintentional sins once a year, that the high priest would come and, and, and essentially stand in the gap for God's people and make a sacrifice. Do you imagine how hard that would be? Like every Sunday we have to come and we have to sacrifice something because we sinned again. But yet Jesus says, I'm the sacrifice of all sacrifice. I'm the perfect spotless lamb. That even the sacrifices that God's people made in the past were inferior and insufficient. That's why the prophets are always yelling at them, right? Like, why do you come to me with these sacrifices, you know, these, these gimpy animals? You don't even bring the good animals. Or you don't come from, from a heart of worship and gratitude. You, you, you come from a religious spirit. You're, or, or how come you don't help the people that need help, the poor and the needy? Why aren't you helping them? It says, why are you bringing me this, this sacrifice that doesn't mean anything? It's just rote. It's just ritual. It's just religion. And so Jesus comes and says that, that, that I am the sacrifice of all sacrifice, the tabernacle of all tabernacles, the high priest of all high priests. Now, what you could also say, I think, because Jesus is, has no rivals and because Jesus is eternal, is that you could also say, I think very confidently, that, that Jesus also comes to end all religion. <laughs> that Jesus comes to end all religion. Jesus is not starting a new religion. So, so when Jesus comes in, in the first century, he's not saying, I'm starting this new thing. It's going to look differently. He's actually just fulfilling what has already come before him in, in, in Jewish custom and tradition and, and theology and what, all the things the Old Testament pointed to. He's just fulfilling all those things, exposing all this, showing that, yes, they had a time. There were better promises. There were covenants that were made. There were laws in place. But now it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. He's just continually on and giving us this this opportunity to to end religion. Because I don't like religion. Because religion is about what you and I do for God. It's about you and I making sacrifices for God. It's about you and I, if we obey, if, we, if we're good people, then God will bless us. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what the gospel is about at all. It's about what Christ has accomplished for you and what Christ has done for you. It's about grace upon grace because it doesn't matter because every day we fall short of the glory of God. And there's no amount of sacrifice. There's no amount of religion that we can do to bridge the gap between us and God. And so all religions have, have things that are, that are in common. You, you could say all religions are, are, are giving their take on what is ultimate reality. And, how we, and then probably secondly, you could say religion is also about how do we bridge the gap between that ultimate reality or that transcendent being? How do we connect to that God, whatever that God may be? And you could even say, in some cases, some, some people's religion is just, well, anything I can observe scientifically, naturally, that's my religion. We can prove it that way. So everyone has a religion of some kind. But what Jesus does and how he ends all religions is because Jesus is the one who stands in the gap between us and God. That he's, you remember in the Old Testament, the priest, the high priest, as the, the writer's talking about here, and why they were just copies and shadows was they represented the people, right? They stood in the gap for the people. That they would offer sacrifices to God so that God would, would be, you know, would back off 
essentially. And, and, and yet now what he's saying is, they don't, we don't need them anymore. Because Jesus stands in the gap now. And every day, why his ministry is superior now? It's because every day he pleads for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is your mediator and your intercessor, that all day long he prays for you and he mediates for you. Andy mentioned it last week. I've mentioned it a million times. But but one day when we stand before God, we're not going to go, hey, God, let me show you my resume of my good deeds and my morality. Let me show you how good of a guy I was. That, that I have, if I have to stand before a holy, good, sovereign God and show him my resume of good things I've done, it's going to be a very scary day for me. But what the scriptures teach us is that Jesus became sin for us. That, that his righteousness becomes ours in faith. And so, so his perfect record, his perfect run, the way in which he obeyed the Father in every way becomes ours. And so when I stand before God, Jesus is going to say, Hey, that's my boy, Ryan. I've been praying for him. I've been mediating and interceding for him his whole life. He's good. Because his faith's in me, not in himself and not in what he's accomplished. That doesn't mean we don't do good deeds. Of course not. But that's not to earn our salvation. That's not to to make us right with God. It's because we're already Christians. It's just what we do. It's It's a posture of service. It's a posture of gratitude. It's like, thank you, God, for what you've done. How can I serve you? How can I worship you? How can I be grateful for all that you've done? Here's my life. It's an offering for you. And often... As many of us in this room know, it's going to send us to some scary places. You might end up in South Africa. You might end up in the Ukraine. You might end up just walking across the street and inviting your friend or your neighbors to to pizza. And they're like the weird, creepy neighbors. I was telling a story to someone, and maybe when you're kids, you always build up in your head these creepy houses on your block. Right? I mean, when you're a kid, you'd ride your bike. And we had this, this one house that, that had a moat. And uh, I mean, literally a moat. I'm not joking. This is in Southern California in LA, by the way. And uh, all these trees. And, and we'd always ride by and go, hey. And we'd stop and we'd go, hey, I'll give you five bucks if you could run in there and knock on the door. And, and there were all these like urban legends built up around this one house that this old lady was like a witch and she would eat you and, and put you in a stew or something. And, and I remember one day, um, I, I actually did it. I went across the moat. Uh, there were no crocodiles or any, you know, it was, it was fine, and, and went in there. And there's just this sweet old lady that just, can I help you? And then I didn't know what to say because I was like, wait, you're supposed to be really creepy, but you're like my grandma. And, um, but, but you see, that's what happens when we follow Jesus is that we end up finding ourselves in these places and, 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 and being in the lives of people that we wouldn't normally be in as, as a response of gratitude, as a, as a response of service, as a response of of worship. It's not to earn our salvation. And so, so Jesus comes and he, he stands in the gap for us to end all religions. He's the high priest of all priests, the tabernacle of all tabernacles, the temple of all temples. I love the way Paul talks about um, we, we already just uh, read this. Scott read this in Colossians 1. talks about this reconciling work. And, and Jesus in verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So w- what Paul is saying is by the, 
the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, he's reconciling all things. And in the Greek, you know what all things means? All things. On heaven and on earth. You didn't have to go to seminary to figure that out. Everything is in him. Everything we need. We don't want to go back to some religion or religious posture. And let me say, say this. When I talk about religion, a lot of us will say, well, I'm not religious or I didn't grow up in a religious home. Everybody's religious. Because everybody's made by God and everybody's trying to figure out what am I here for? Why? Right? We make sacrifices in, of time and money and affection to all kinds of things. Don't tell me you're not religious. I'm religious too. Right? It may not happen in a church service. It may not happen if you're you know, Muslim and you're, you're praying five times a day or, or taking a pilgrimage to Mecca or you're Mormons and you're you know, wearing weird underwear or knocking on doors, whatever it is. But we all make sacrifices of time and money and affection, things that bring us identity and hope, and it's all a religious posture. This is what brings me joy. This is what brings me happiness. This is what brings me life and identity. And so we, we, we lay our lives down for, for all kinds of things. It may be, I want to be the smartest man or woman in the room. I want to be the most educated. I want to be the most wealthy, the most successful. I want to be the, the fastest. I want to be the strongest. I want to be the most popular. Whatever it is, all those things can become an identity. I, I want to you know, have my identity so wrapped up in my own you know, culture that that becomes who I am more than anything else. And yet in Christ Jesus, he gives us a new identity. And that's why Christianity is like, it's like an anti-religion. Because in the, in the first century, I don't know if you know this historically, but when early Christians were uh, you know, roaming the, the Roman Empire in and, and the first century and, and, and worshiping this Christ and, and all these things, people, non-Christians used to come up to them and go, they, they would think they were actually atheists because they'd go, hey, uh, you guys are kind of odd because you don't have a temple or a place that you go and make sacrifices to. Um, because even... Jewish non-Christians at the time would, would say, well, where's the temple? Where, where do you make sacrifices, right? And then Gentile kind of pagan worshipers, they had all kinds of temples. They would sacrifice food and, and, and all kinds of things. And they'd go, like, where is that? Well, we, Jesus is our temple. We don't, we don't need that anymore. Well, okay, so, so who's like your, your guru? Who's your leader? Who's your, your priest? Who, who's the one that, that, that speaks to the people or sacrifices for the people, and they would kind of go, no, Jesus is our high priest. He's our senior shepherd. I, I, we don't have one. Wait, wait, wait. Like, are you guys atheists? Like, I don't understand. Like, you don't, have a, you don't have a temple. You don't sacrifice. You don't have these, you know, someone who, who kind of stands in the gap for you. No, Jesus has become all those things for us. And so even in the first century, it was like this anti-religion, this I don't know what to do with you. And then we know historically that the Christians would, even though they were being persecuted, very much so in Hebrews and later the next few hundred years, is that they would be persecuted and they would actually go and help the non-Christians who were dying of plagues and dying of all kinds of things. They became the first century hospitals for these people. And people were scratching their head going like, so why do you give a rip about our people? That you care for your own people and you care about us who don't believe what you believe? Well, yeah, because that's what Jesus did for us. He laid his life down for his enemies. That's what we do. We consider others better than ourselves. 
And so I think Christianity at its best, when it's, it's at its purest form, is that people sh- shouldn't even know what to do with us. That we shouldn't be talking about all the religious things that we, we do, but this Messiah that we worship, this Jesus that we worship, that's what the church should be about. That when people come in, they know it's about this Jesus, this high priest, this temple of temples, tabernacle of tab- tabernacles, and we live such, such good lives among others that others are drawn in because they've encountered this Jesus. The one who sits at the right hand of God. Now, there's also something very interesting about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and sitting down. The scholars have debated over this for for many years, and, and what does that actually mean? But here's what I think it means. Jesus sat down because religion is dead. It's finished. It's completed. I've done it all. Right? He's not standing up. He's sitting down. He's, he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. He sat down in a place of authority and power and rule and reign. Why? Because it is finished. It is completed. There is no other sacrifice to be made. It's all done. You don't need to go to the high priest. You don't need to say your prayers and hopefully God will somehow love us. And again, that doesn't mean we don't pray. It doesn't mean we're not obedient. We'll get to that in the moment. But that's what he came to do. To say there's freedom in me. And I think that's why Christianity is so resilient also. It can go to any place, any time, any part of the world, any culture, because it's an anti-religion. It's not dependent on the culture that is there. And it can adapt itself because we have this message that doesn't change, this good news of Jesus living, dying, rising. Again, it can go to South Africa, it can go to Kansas City, it can go to you know, Zimbabwe, it can go to, to the inner city or the suburbs. It doesn't matter. It's resilient in every way. And it can go in 1492 or 2092. It doesn't matter the time or the place. Because it's not a religion. And it's a reason that Jesus has no rivals. Now also, Jesus has no rivals. I think a second kind of big point from our, our text is that he, he came to redefine what a relationship with God looks like. And be careful how I say that, but he uses this word, the writer here, this, this word covenant. Um, you notice here in verse uh, 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I know we can, can read that and say, well, all these, you remember these, these covenants in the Old Testament? God makes a covenant with Abraham. It says, through you, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. That, and then Paul later in Galatians 3 will say, hey, that anyone that believes in Christ is actually part of that covenant. That covenant didn't go away. That's still fulfilled in Christ. But there's this covenant that God made with Moses, and there's these laws, and there was these rituals that, that came. And, and it doesn't mean we don't obey God's commands anymore. I'm not saying that. But, but all the rituals, all the, the ceremonies, th- those were going away. There was a better covenant that was going to come in Christ, that, that they weren't necessary. And so we see in verse 8, it says that, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days coming... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. This new covenant is going to be written on hearts and minds and souls. It's not going to be dependent on a physical space that we have to go to and a promise that God made. It's not going to be written on, on stone tablets and carried around. But it's actually going to come to, through Jesus to his, his people. And that, that covenant is coming. And that's why he's saying that's, it, the, the old one's obsolete. You don't need it anymore. It's not necessary. We don't need to go and re-sacrifice Jesus. We don't need to come and bring a cow on, into a, a morning service and lay him on the altar. 
That's not necessary anymore. But Jesus, what he's doing and why he's a a rival of all rivals in every way is that he's redefining what a relationship with God looks like and he's redefining it using this word covenant. Now, like I said, covenant's kind of a tricky word. Now, usually when we use the word covenant, most don't use this word. We think contract, right? So a contract is, hey, I'll do my part, you do my part, your part. If things don't go well, we rip up the contract, it's over, it's a done deal. But a covenant has a, has a de- deeper, more relational uh, meaning to it. Is that a covenant is a, it's a relationship that has total delight, intimacy, closeness to it, but it also has a binding nature at the same time. So you can have a covenant and you can have intimacy at the same time. And I think a covenant actually goes even further than what we think a contract is. Because think about in a marriage relationship. If two people enter a marriage relationship and it's kind of contractual, it'll, it'll, it'll go like this. Okay, honey, we're going to get married. Here's the deal. I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm going to keep up my end of the bargain, but you need to keep up your end of the bargain. As long as you keep up your end of the bargain, I'll stay in this thing. But if you don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'm out. That's contractual. It's business-like, right? Imagine living a marriage your whole life, and that, that's, that's how it goes, right? Hey, Ryan, how did, you, how did you stay married to Christy for 18 years? You've been together for 23 years. Good night. How in the world does she put up with you? That's a whole different conversation. But... Well, you know what? Because we're in a contract. Gosh, dang it. And on my wedding day, I said, I do. And I meant it. I mean, we can't stand each other. We barely talk. We don't communicate. But I'm staying married, right? That, that's what happens in a contract. That's not a covenant. That's not deep, intimate closeness. See, what a covenant does is, is, is it goes deeper and it says this. It says, you're going you're gonna to enter into this relationship and I'm going to be what I'm called to be and whether you fail or not, I am still in it to the very end. A little different there, isn't it? E- even if the, the feelings get a little drier or things aren't always great, I am in it till the end because I love you. And if the other person on the other end who's in this covenant, my wife in the illustration, again, I know all the illustrations break down, but, but if she's saying, I've made a covenant with God and I've made a covenant with you to stay in it, even when you fail me, even when, when you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm still pursuing you. I'm still going to be in this to the end. Here's why that works. Because that's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is for us. The God who says, even when you're unfaithful, I am faithful to the end. Even When you sin, I still forgive you. And if you understand that in a marriage relationship or any relationship for that matter, guess what? I can be gracious to them when they fall short. I can be gracious to them when they hurt me or wound me. Because God has been that to me. That he laid his life down in his son for his enemies. And he forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he keeps on forgiving. Even in the hardest of times. And so this new covenant that God's making with his people is a binding, intimate relationship. We we, we see that in verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Like, he's very honest. He's just like, we made this covenant. It was supposed to be this close, intimate relationship. That just listen to me, Israel. Just follow my commands. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. It's going to be better than you ever imagined. And what do they do? Hey, God, uh, 
I know we were enslaved in the desert, but uh, yeah, I, I think we want to go back there. Like, I know you, you make all these promises and you're going to lead us to some promised land of milk and honey, but, you know, I think we should just go sling bricks for 400 more years. And they become this hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. So does God throw up his hands and say, yeah, forget you. He continues to pursue them even when they don't want to be pursued. And that's where it gets really good because when Jesus comes, what does he say in verse um, what does the writer say in verse 12? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. How does that happen? It happens on the cross. That the father turns away from the son as he's being crushed on the cross for the sins of God's people. That the anger of God, the wrath of God, it comes down on Jesus and, and the father has to turn away for, for, a, for a time. But Jesus was obedient. He kept his covenantal promises with the father, showing us exactly what this looks like, what perfect obedience looks like, what relationship with the father looks like. And he, he turns away. He's crushed for our sins. By his wounds, we are healed. And he says, I love them that much. I'm not bailing on them. I'm going to lay my life down for my enemies. I'm not bailing. Who's like that? Nobody. Nobody. You cannot name anyone. Like we can even say that. I wish I pray to God. My my wife is that will be that way. My kids will be that. Even when I screw up tremendously, that they wouldn't bail on me. But God says, I'm not bailing on you. That's what a covenant is. That I love you that much, and that's why Jesus has no rival. And how he's redefining this relationship with his his people and, and with anyone that would believe in him. It's not a contract that we just tear up when things get a little dicey. That he keeps going after his people. Because Jesus laid his life down in an unconditional for the glory of God, but for our good, in an unconditional loving way. That if as Paul says in Romans eight if God's not going to spare his own son and hold back the hardest thing that anyone could ever do, why would he hold back from us? Why would he not give us everything? I have sons, the three of them. Love them to death. I have a daughter. I'm not going to say I love her more, but I do love her in a different way. But I can't imagine. Here, here's my son. He's yours. Just take him. And that's what God did for us. His only son. Because I'm going to be faithful to the covenant all the way down. Jesus has no rival. He's the high priest of all priests who stands in the gap for us. That brings us to the Father. No other God can say that. I was, I was even studying uh, Islam this week and just looking at it again. And it's kind of an interesting religion in some ways. But, but, but what's interesting about even that religion is that, that there's really just a, a transcendent God that we just have to obey and just hopefully we don't get killed in the end. I mean, that's a summary, but that's kind of how it is. Do these things. Just obey. You better, better do these five things or, or God's not going to be happy with you. That's so not what the gospel is at all. It's a God who comes for a relationship. Now, why does this matter? Why does all this, this matter? And, and I could also frame it this way. How do we know if we're kind of in a relationship with God or we're still kind of playing the religious game? 
Because I don't want you to play the religious game. That's why we started this church. That's why we're planning more churches. Because we don't need more religion. And the gospel gets so misunderstood. Because if you talk to most of your friends on the street, coworkers, neighbors, you ask them what Christianity is really all about, it's, it's usually something to the effect of it's about morality or being good people or going to church. Like, really? If that's what we're giving people, like, well, it's just about going to church. Like, you better go to church. Because you don't want God to be mad at you, right? I mean, you, don't, you, you, have to, you could hate it all every minute you're there, but just go to church. Then you're a good Christian, right? That, I mean, that's crazy, Todd. I, mean, I would never come to that conclusion from the scriptures. But, but what if we are finding ourselves kind of in that religious spirit? Like, a lot of us have come from those backgrounds. That we thought that's what it was. It's being good people, being going to church, doing churchy things, right? Saying the right prayers, trying to be nice. Well, one way we can know if we're kind of falling into that is that if, if you think about your neighbor and you think about if they're thriving and doing really well and they're not even Christians and you're really bitter about that, you're probably just religious. Psalmists talk about that all the time, right? God, I'm, I'm, I'm following you, I'm worshiping you, but it seems like People that don't even know you are, you know, getting rich and, you know, having great marriages. What's going on here? Because that's a religious spirit that says, I do certain things and then God owes me. Right? I I came to church. I said my prayers. I mean, I read Leviticus this week in my quiet time. I mean, that's like another notch in heaven. I don't even know what's going on in there, but I did it. I even had an awkward conversation with a coworker about Jesus. And I slapped a, a track in front of him. It was one of those million dollar bills. And I ran. But Jesus, I did that for you. Right? Why are they having all the success? Right? So, so there, there's this, this thing that, that can kind of creep up to him, and, and it really that's my, my point of saying that there's a shift that needs to happen from kind of religion, formalism, to intimacy. That's what verse 11, if you look at verse 11 in chapter 8, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Do, do you know him? Like when you read the scriptures, is it just like the New York Times? Is there something that's kind of come to life there? You pray and talk to God. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're not saying like, oh, every time I open the scriptures, it's just like Jesus is right in the room and we do high fives and he teaches me directly what the Greek is. I'm not saying that. But but there's a sense of I belong to God. There's a sense I'm walking with God. There's a sense of I love God. I don't know everything. There's a lot of mystery to it all, but but I'm walking with him in faith. I'm trusting him. I'm trusting everything in my life to him. There's a joy of, of knowing him. I'm thankful for his grace. I'm thankful for his mercy. Thankful for his people. So, so is there, do we know him? Have we shifted from this, this religious kind of formalism? It's just a contract that I just kind of, hopefully I say my prayers and maybe he'll get off my back for a while. Or is there an intimate walking with God? And actually we get a clue, and, and I didn't read this, this text, but if you go to ch- chapter 9, verse 14, it shows the shift here. It says, uh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So constantly the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, there's all these works you're trying to do. There's all these customs. There's all these rituals you're trying to do. Those are dead works. They, they, you don't need to do those anymore. Christ has become our sacrifice. It becomes just ritual. It becomes formal. Okay, here, God, here's my thing. We say, no, 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 no. Your conscience is clear now. 
You're in Christ. You've, you've believed in the one who's become the temple of temples and the tabernacle of tabernacles, the high priest of all high priests, the covenant of all covenants. So do you know him? Is there a shift from religious formality to intimacy? Secondly, is there a deep understanding of grace and its effects? 8.11 says, And they shall not teach each one his own neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. From the least of them to the greatest. This is an interesting text, because I think what happens is, in this new covenant, when we come and encounter by faith Jesus Christ, what happens is, the grace that's been given to us begins to flow down into every relationship. From the least, the most prestigious, or I should say the opposite, from the greatest, prestigious, power, whatever, whether they have a lot of money, their power, whatever, it doesn't matter, we're still gracious to them, or to the least, we're gracious to them too. So, so is there a sense of this grace that has come to you, that Jesus Christ has laid his life down for his enemies? That you didn't deserve it? That's why in relationships you can't treat people and just go, well, hey, you know, well, I know I've been forgiven, but I'm not forgiving you. I don't know how deep the gospel's gotten in your heart. Right? Well, it's for me. Grace is for me, but not for you. How, how does that work? So you think somehow because you're good or somehow you earned it, that grace is for you and love is for you and forgiveness and salvation, but for them, no. Because you don't know what they've done to me, Ryan. I get it. I, I've walked in some very dark relationships, still working some things out with some family and some other things. I, I totally get that. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> no one said it's easy. Amen? It's not easy to forgive, Right? But, but you have to allow this, this miraculous high priest, Jesus Christ, who's come and lived and died in our place, to see that with, with deep faith and, and, and aliveness to go like, oh my gosh, how can I not be gracious to everyone I meet? How can I not realize that the whole thing is a gift? The fact that I'm even breathing this morning, right? Like, you didn't have any say in that. Well, that's what's crazy about our culture, Right? It's so crazy. It's just like every article, everything is about just like how we can live longer. And if you just eat, you know, creatine and kale and, and mix them together, you're going to live forever, right? But they don't realize everything is a gift. Like, isn't it crazy when you, I mean, some of you have these grandparents, right? They're like 99 years old and they've eaten bacon and like smoked cigars their whole lives. Like they've eaten the cigars, not just smoked them. And they're still alive. And yet I'm on the treadmill, okay, I gotta live, I gotta, right? It's like, I mean, some of that's just genetics, some of that's just God's grace and sovereignty. I mean, everything is a gift, everything is grace. The fact you can go to your sink and get clean water, right? We're running for Africa. Like, like we don't think how much that is just grace and a gift. I mean, it's Kansas City Tap. If, I mean, I know it's not the, the best, but to be born where you were born, to have the opportunities that you have is all grace. Right? I mean, I think it's good to read history because it's like when people die of like scurvy, it's like, thank the Lord for a CVS, CVS minute clinic. Good night. I mean, right? Like we, we get sick. Like we, scurvy? What do you do with scurvy? There's no Walgreens. I'm not getting an antibiotic for that. Okay, I'll stop. So there's a, a deep, <laughs> there is a point to this. There's a deep understanding of grace and its effects. We're given this new identity in Christ, that, that it's not our performance, it's not what we do, it's not our job, it's not our ethnicity, it's not our socioeconomic background, it's not our upbringing, but it's all grace and it's all in Christ. I think there's a third reality when we understand that Jesus has no rivals and why it matters is that there's a shift 
from me to we, from me to we. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The idea of we, togetherness, especially in America and the West, is really difficult because we're so isolated and so individualistic. Everything's about me. I do God my way, I do church my way, I do relationships my way. This idea of that God would redeem a people for himself, a people that you should care just as much about your own spiritual development, your own life with God as you should uh, your neighbor sitting next to you right now. Because we're a family and we're a church. Because like one day when we're all in the new heavens and new earth and, and, and heaven together, like it's not going to be just like these individual silos where we just kind of like do our own thing. Just like leave me alone. We'll be together as God's people, dwelling with God's people. It's a, it's a rehearsal even now. It's what the church is. It's a rehearsal for heaven to, to learn how to encourage one another to, to be together. Now, one of the reasons why we call our membership covenant partnership is very intentional. Because God has made a covenant with us and we've made a covenant with each other to not bail when it gets hard. Right? All the covenant talk earlier. That's what a covenant is. That's what a church is supposed to be. It's not, hey, when I don't like the music, I don't like the preacher, I don't like this, I don't like that, we bail. It's like, no, what a covenant says is that even when I don't understand, even when I, I don't agree, I mean, I'm not saying there's violence or there's things going on, but, but when things get hard, we stick it out together. That's what covenants are because that's what God does to us. Thank the Lord that he doesn't give up on us. But you know what? When you stick it out, that's where growth happens. That's where you learn how to forgive people and you learn how to bless your enemies and you learn how to disagree and still be friends and reconcile and have hard conversations. You can apply that to a marriage. You can apply that to a friendship. You can apply that to the church. It's a shift from me to we. And then last, I think when we, we've kind of moved from kind of formalism, religion to relationship is that it creates a life of service. It creates a life of service. 9.14, uh, chapter 9, verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That when you're freed in Christ, when you've had your sins forgiven, when you've seen what Christ has accomplished for us, when you see he's the high priest of all high priests, the temple of all temples, the tabernacles of all tabernacles, there's no sacrifice I can make, there's no prayer I can make, there's no good deeds I can do. You know what it does? Is it frees you to serve, to lay your life down for the betterment of others. That's what Philippians 2 says. That Jesus did the same thing. He became nothing. He left heaven, perfection, left the glory of, of heaven and, and came down into sinful humanity and laid his life down as a servant to show us how we're to live our lives. It's the backwardness of the kingdom. That where you find life is not by thinking always about yourself, but where you find life is by giving your life away. That it's more blessed to give than receive. Isn't it so true? It's like that weird, this weird thing happens. Like we try to do things and we think, um, okay, I'm doing this act of service. I'm helping this person. I'm serving this person. And then you like feel really good about it, but then you feel guilty. Do you ever have that? Like I shouldn't feel that good about this, right? Because I'm doing this selflessly. I'm doing this because I love Jesus for the glory of God and I'm feeling good about it. Well, that's because God's wired us that way. That's how it should work. Can you imagine a world where everyone's just serving each other, helping each other? It's not about you. 
world changes overnight. I mean, we do have sin problem and all that, but yeah. It's the way it should be. There should be that feeling of, I don't love doing dishes, but this serves my family, or this helps my kids, or this helps my neighbor, or whatever. It frees us for a life of service. That we stop focusing so much on our navels and what's going on and you know, me and the Holy Trinity, me, myself, and I, but we start laying our lives down for the good of others in small ways and big ways. I read this uh, article a couple weeks ago and I, it really spoke to me just because I, I think there's a lot of, um, and, and I'm not immune to this, but, but I think in, in ministry there can be what I call pastors that are prima donnas. And so they have this calling to God and so that means they can't serve or they can't you know, unplug a toilet because they're, you know, they're called to read the scriptures, right? And I love just, just the heart, and I'm not saying I do this perfectly because I don't by any means, but I just love the heart of our leaders in our church and the people of our church that are just willing to do the little things that go unnoticed. I mean, Andy and Tony, you know, cleaning the church, most of you don't hear about that, but I mean, Andy's helping me, you know, unclog toilets and we're doing all kinds of stuff, whatever, whatever it takes. But we don't, you know, we pray that that would just be a normal part of who we are from the littlest things to the biggest things. But there's nothing that we just go like, I'm above that. I'm too good for that. You know, I have a hernia. I mean, unfortunately, I can't use that excuse anymore because I got a clean bill of health. Dang it, doctor. I almost was tempted to lie to my wife. I didn't. I was just like, well, he said nine more weeks. I'm sorry. I have to sit in the chair. Just, can you give me a Diet Coke? So my friends, I, I pray um, just as we, we take the Lord's Supper every week, um, even this morning, as we, as we contemplate and think about and reflect on the bread that was representative of Christ's body broken for us, the, the cup representing his blood shed for us, that, that Jesus became a servant for us, that he laid his life down for the good of others, that he didn't gain anything from that, but he willingly gave his life to death so that we could live And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Hebrews is all about. That there's a better covenant. There's a better high priest. There's a better temple. There's a better tabernacle. And his name is Jesus. And he has no rivals. If you're a believer in Christ, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. The way we take communion is we break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. We have some uh, uh, allergy-free, gluten-free, free of any kind of bread elements in the middle there. If you need that. Please feel free to take that. And if you're not a believer, we just ask you to stay seated. We have some uh, prayers in the city life you can reflect on. And I would just encourage you just this morning, um, I know we, we talked a lot of, about a lot of things, but just before you take the supper, is just to ask maybe a simple question of something like, you know, am I finding myself in this kind of religious, formal relationship with God, or, or have I moved into this closeness, freedom, and grace, and mercy relationship? Just lay that before God. Maybe ask for help, whatever that may look like for you. Let's pray. God, I know this morning my words aren't adequate to try to teach and preach and explain a really deep and profound text. But I know one thing is true is that Jesus has no rivals. And one thing is true is that he's made this covenant with us that is unbreakable, that will not go away because of our stupidity or sin or selfishness. But he's faithful in every way. I pray that would do a deep, deep work in our hearts this morning. That Jesus has come to end all religions. We don't have to come and try to be something or try to sacrifice for something. 
but it's all grace and it's all mercy. It's for that we're so thankful. So help us live lives of service and gratitude this week. In your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the supper with us.